Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourself. If a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Good morning. This is, I'm going to say, one of those junk drawer passages in the Bible. Um, the NIV translators called it sin, faith, duty, because they didn't want to call it, we're not sure why he threw all these things in here. Uh, I read this recently while I was traveling, and planes give you too much time to think, and I realized Jesus was arguably the best public speaker in history. Do I really expect him to be just kind of rambling here? And I realized this isn't a junk drawer, it's a Lego box. Come back. There we go. The pieces are different, but they add up to something. So what we've got when we take this passage as a whole is a masterfully crafted teaching on forgiveness. Now, the things that we're going to go through this morning are not the only things to get out of this passage. Um, it's not all there is to say about forgiveness. Um, and I might not actually be the right person to be teaching on forgiveness. Um, first of all, not enough people have been mean to me for me to really practice. Um, but the times that people have hurt me have been very confusing, and I'm still working through one of those times. So whatever you get out of this is God's business. I'm preaching on this passage because I'm a nerd, and I think it's a really cool passage. So in it, Jesus gives four sections of teaching, and he gives us four attitude adjustments that go with them. So he starts with preparing us to hear about forgiveness, and he starts with talking about how seriously God takes sin. This is a necessary place to start. Look how protective God is in this passage. He's saying he cares about what happens to you and to your heart. He's saying God cares about the losses of innocence that you go through in life. And then he follows it up by saying that you're not innocent. Now, a lot of us are willing to admit, well, I'm not perfect, but we really kind of want to think we're a different kind of not perfect than the people who hurt us. 
I was recently thinking about how I was affected by somebody's violent attitude. Well, then I took a child abuse prevention training at work, and I realized I had this same murderous anger towards people I haven't even met. I'm not any different from the person whose anger scared me. In order to be ready to forgive, we need to know that God has justice in hand and to know our own need for mercy, not in order to beat ourselves up, but to open ourselves up to the gentleness of God and eventually to realize that God has compassion on their losses of innocence too. So the attitude adjustment that Jesus gives us here is a clear look at identity. He tells us about the identity of God, that he is someone who is fiercely protective and someone who can be trusted to be just. And then he tells us about us, that we are fiercely loved and protected and that we are just as capable of victimizing as the people who victimized us. Well, so then Jesus gives us the command, and the command is to rebuke and forgive. Rebuking is a very, very old command. Um, it's part of the Torah. In Leviticus, God says, do not hate your neighbor in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Now, this was a law given to a whole community, and it affects a community deeply when sin is either confronted and addressed or not. Now, for those of us who are conflict avoidant, we like to skip this step a little bit. We kind of move on to the like, it's okay, before we even get to rebuking. But when we don't rebuke our brothers and sisters, when we don't confront wrong things when they happen, we're part of that problem of causing people to sin and causing people to stumble, like Jesus said. Maybe not directly, but it's kind of like if you don't clean your kitchen and you don't refrigerate your food and then you invite somebody over for dinner, you're not maybe making them sick directly, but you're providing a very friendly environment for germs to grow. Rebuking isn't about telling somebody off. It's about obeying Jesus and it's part of how you protect and care for your spiritual family. It's not a mean thing that only critical people do. Jesus is telling us, all of us, regardless of our level of boldness or shyness, to love people through our honesty. And then he tells us to forgive. Now, forgiveness is kind of sticky and easily misunderstood. Um, a lot of us who have grown up in the church have actually been taught to forgive even before somebody apologizes, which is very sweet and lovely and one of the biggest places for spiritual abuse to happen. Because um, what can happen is people will report abuse or assault to a pastor and he will tell them immediately to forgive when there's not been any repentance from the offender. And if that has been your experience, I am so sorry. That is wrong and it is not the heart of God. God is not looking to deepen the wounds that you already have. The reason that it's not great advice is, first of all, it's just not wise to go back to the same level of trust and availability to someone who won't admit what they did. Um, but also, it's not what God models. There is estrangement when there's no repentance. That's why when the first Christians invited people to know Jesus, and they said, repent and believe, because 
Jesus provided a way for forgiveness to happen, but we're still estranged until we use it. Now, I'm not saying that you can't forgive when the other hasn't repented. You can choose to emotionally release somebody from what they morally owe you, but it's complicated, it takes time, and it is not the same thing as reconciling with them. That's why if you read Jesus' teaching on forgiveness in Matthew 18, it shows a very different pattern from this passage here. Because the Matthew 18 passage is about what, what do you do if they don't repent? And it doesn't end with reconciliation, that passage. Forgiving in the absence of repentance is much more like loving your enemies. You're acknowledging that at this point they are acting as an enemy and you're still choosing to pray for them and seek their good. But you're not pretending that there's real healthy relationship there when there's not. What Jesus is talking about here is a very different situation. In this passage, Jesus is specifically talking about someone who repents. Now, repenting is not quite the same thing as an apology. A lot of times we say sorry because that's sort of socially what you owe somebody. Repenting is changing your mind. Um, so it's acknowledging that you were wrong. It's wanting to do, different, do, do differently. And it's embarking on a new path. Now, at the time, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught that you could forgive three times, period. And in an honor-shame culture, that makes sense. It's impressive if you're merciful, but at a certain point, it just starts to look like weakness. And in a right and wrong culture, that kind of makes sense too. We're dealing in our culture right now with the question of whether forgiveness is the same thing as complicity in what somebody did. So people were taught then, and are kind of taught now, that forgiveness should be limited by honor and by justice. They were making human rules to accommodate for human power, and in those terms, they were reasonable. And now Jesus adjusts our attitude about what is reasonable. He asks us to go from considering what human rules can ask of us to what God can ask of us. What is our honor compared to the honor of following God? What is right compared to the rightness of obeying God? And since when has God ever been focused on human power anyway? We put rules in place in order to uphold and believe in our honor and rightness, and God is just not bound by those at all. Now, so Jesus has great speaking techniques. He's so fun. So they were saying, forgive somebody three times, period. He says, forgive them seven times in the same day. That's an ancient Middle Eastern public speaking technique where you exaggerate to colorfully make a point. Now I know we want to take God's word seriously, so why am I saying he's exaggerating? Well first, because if someone is actually repenting, this probably won't happen, because repentance includes commitment to a new way. So if this literally happens, then rebuke them not about the sin they keep committing, but about their pattern of manipulation because abusers do this. They'll say, I'm sorry, in order to get out of trouble without really dealing with the consequences of their sin. Or they'll say, I'm sorry, but, and then turn the apology around to blame you. So use discernment. If they're not actually repenting, don't reconcile, because that's not real reconciliation. That's them continuing to sin against you, 
to not recognize you for who you are, someone made in the image of God, and that's you pretending like everything's okay when it's not. So that's both of you lying and living with it. The other way to tell that this is an exaggeration is that this is a very compressed timeline. Seven times in a day doesn't give you a lot of time to recover from the first time in the day. So what I don't want you to hear Jesus saying here is, get over it and get over it now. Because sometimes the damage that somebody does takes a long time to heal. If I break your ankle, I'm not going to, don't worry. But if I break your ankle and you forgive me for it, that's not going to stop you hobbling around on crutches for a couple of weeks. And nobody's going to say, hey, you're so unforgiving because you need crutches. That's just the reality of what I did to you. Likewise, Jesus is not angry at you or blaming you if you're still dealing with anger and grief because somebody hurt you. Some of these wounds take a long time to heal. Some of the traumatic ones shape your neurology. Some of the early ones shape your life. And none of that is the same as unforgiveness. You certainly can be emotionally hurting and refuse to forgive, but they aren't the same thing and they're not inextricably linked. As a child, I thought forgiveness had to be immediate because in another place, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, your heavenly father won't forgive you. So I rushed it and it gives you no time to rebuke somebody. It doesn't give you time to be angry and sad and it doesn't give you time to forgive because you can't cancel a debt that you haven't calculated. But forgive is a verb. A noun either is or isn't. This cat is either here or it's not. Unfortunately, it's not. But a verb happens, and happening implies time. When God told Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's house and go to the land I will show you, Abram obeyed. And God didn't come back to him 12 miles later saying, hey, I thought I told you to go to the promised land. What are you doing here? Because Abram was in the middle of doing what God had told him to do. And if his camel got a flat tire halfway along the way, he wouldn't worry that he wasn't obeying God anymore. The delay is just part of the journey. So you can be obeying and not be there yet. Well, so then... The disciples say one of the few smart things they ever say, which is increase our faith. Because in their culture, Jesus was asking them to lay aside their dignity. And in our culture, Jesus is asking us to lay aside our rights. And those are huge things. We stake our identity, our security, and our well-being on those things. And we need faith to believe that if we loosen our claws, God is going to be enough to catch us. We need faith to believe that forgiveness is possible and worth it. And forgiveness demands that we exercise tough faith that God is bigger than what's been done to us, that he can heal us, that Jesus' redemption means something. And those are big things. I just, I love the disciples' honesty here. There's just such a great attitude where they're like, I'm not getting this, but I'm not walking away either. And Jesus tells us, good, I'm not walking away either and then proceeds to walk us through it. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, he is not randomly switching subjects to encourage us to try weird magic tricks to prove our faith. I worried about that when I was younger, 
because I don't feel comfortable making tests to prove God's power, and I don't have the spiritual gift of miracles as far as I know. So I would think, well, I guess I don't even have the mustard seed-sized faith. Jesus is asking something impossible, and apparently even his supernatural power is inaccessible to me. That is not what he's saying. He's asking us to give up something we naturally cling to, our rights, our dignity, our one-up on the people who hurt us. Because by nature, we kind of move our competition for survival into the moral realm, too. And we keep score for our own moral survival until Jesus offers us another way to survive. And even then, we're so used to clinging to these things that we often don't know how to stop. So we say with the disciples, I don't know if I can let go of that. That's pretty deeply rooted. Now, when I heard mulberry, I think I was just kind of thinking of, here we go around the mulberry bush. No, they are trees. They are like 40-foot trees. They produce a lot of fruit. Sometimes it's sweet, sometimes it's tasteless and gross. Thank you for letting me know that, Peter. Um, either way, they grow really fast, they spread really fast, and they have invasive roots that keep other plants from growing. Does that sound like anything in your life? Does what somebody did to you dominate the landscape of your life? Do you find that what started out as a simple offense in one area an insult at work or a problem with a friend grows into other areas and affects your confidence, your sleep, your trust with other friends. Let me point out, those things are not sins. When somebody sins against you, it does affect a lot of things in your life, and that in itself is not a sin on your part. The disciples didn't plant this tree that Jesus was pointing out. It was just there. But it can produce sinful fruit. Does that hurt that you felt at work carry over into your time at home and make you less patient with your family, more prone to snapping at your roommates? Is it sometimes really sweet to dwell on what somebody did? A wise friend told me recently, I find that those who won't forgive become the first to victimize others. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. Because when you don't forgive, you begin looking for restitution from the world that it can never give you. When you can't forgive the people who disrespected or victimized you, you spend the rest of your life fighting tooth and nail for that respect from everyone else, even if it's from your young children who can't defend themselves. Now, I grew up on a llama farm, I promise this relates. There are plants around here that are poisonous to llamas, so I grew up uprooting bushes. Um, and like where Jesus lived, our soil is really rocky. And let me tell you, it is barely possible. The roots are twisty and they are strong and there's always that bit that breaks off and can sprout its own bush if you're not careful. This is hard. And Jesus is talking about full-on trees here. This is not something you just rip out. So when God commands you to forgive and you don't feel like you can, you're right. And what Jesus is saying here is he doesn't expect you to rip it out. The attitude adjustment Jesus gives here is about what's possible and for whom. Because he doesn't say, work and work to make your heart presentable to God. He doesn't say, dig and dig and dig to root out your anger. He says, stand on your authority as a servant of God. 
God commanded the plants to grow at the beginning of the world. His command through you is enough to uproot them now. And notice, Jesus doesn't make this about the strength of our faith. If anything, he mentions its weakness. He highlights the response of the tree because of who our faith is in. He doesn't say, if you have enough faith, if you have enough inner strength, you can forgive. He says, if you believe in me at all, creation will recognize you as my servant, and the forces of evil will fear my authority in you. So you can say to your bitterness, be uprooted and planted in the heart of the sea, and it will obey you because you're his servant. You can say to your desire to hold on to your hurts like they're treasures in a museum, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you because of him. And let me just say, side note, I think it's okay to command it multiple times. There's at least one story in the Bible of Jesus needing to touch up the miracles he did. Our miracles are not going to be any neater and tidier than his. But you know what this also means? It means that however much that offense feels like it is part of you, it's not you. These are an invasive species to whom you can say, get out. Your anger isn't you. Anger is a placeholder for the love of God. Bill has pointed out before that anger is a protective emotion. Your heart, the image of God in you, is precious and it's worth protecting. And your initial anger protects your heart from being misused again right away. Part of what gives you the impetus and courage to rebuke your neighbor frankly is how much their sin bothers you. If you're not bothered, there's something wrong. But then, look at what Jesus did for you. Jesus died so that all your sins can be forgiven. He rose so that evil and death can be conquered in your life and never have the last word over you. He reconciled you to the heavenly father that your sin estranged you from. He is in heaven preparing a place for you, preparing an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Nothing anyone can do to you can ultimately harm you. When that is the center of your reality, there isn't a lot of room for bitterness. Anger is a normal and godly response to sin. The Psalms are full of people processing through the pain that other people have caused them. Jesus took the time to cry over how off base Jerusalem was. But then, in God's time and in God's power, you agree to let it be uprooted in order to make room for the love of Jesus. Remember, God does the uprooting. God does the displacing. That is what is possible for him. What is possible for you is to not let him. If you will not make room for Jesus, he will not force you to make room for him. The reason that he says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven, is because you can either let in the grace of God into your life or not. So now... Jesus gives us one last piece of protection here. And it's this image of a servant and a master, and a servant just doing their duty. Why? Well, because our temptation now is to say, wow, I did something really hard. 
In fact, I used supernatural power to cut that person a break. What a great, kind person I am. Well, that means we're still keeping score. And we're still holding ourselves morally over them. And Jesus nips this in the bud. This was not extra credit work, he says. This was part of the assignment. You did this with God's power because you needed miraculous power, not because you're so miraculously nice. And you did it because he told you to, not because you wanted to. And so just like servants don't expect to be celebrated for just doing their job, we shouldn't view forgiveness as something extraordinary we do because we're so benevolent. It's just what we owe the one who unreasonably and repeatedly forgave us. But it gets cooler because elsewhere, Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master. It's enough for the servant to be like the master. So when we forgive, we are reflecting God's nature because the servant is supposed to be like the master. But our response, I just did it because I'm his servant, tells us something about God's nature too. I did it because who I am compels me to. Forgiveness is not foreign to God's nature. Just like servants don't consider it exceptional when they obey the commands that come from the master's mouth, God doesn't consider it weird to follow the impulses that come from his heart. God is not fighting his nature to forgive you. He's not struggling with himself. God wants to forgive you because, because God, because God is love. We are reflections and copies, protégés and signposts of the one to whom forgiveness is natural. That is why we forgive. This last attitude adjustment that Jesus gives us is to realize I'm not a superhero, I'm a servant. I'm just following that guy. Because Jesus is not showing us a God who is cold and exacting. He's showing us a God who can make so much room in our hearts for his love that forgiveness becomes as normal to us as it is to him. Do you want that? Do you at least want to want it? It's okay to say that to him. Lord, increase my faith. He can work with that. Will you let his grace in today? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you unreasonably and repeatedly forgive us multiple times a day. Teach us to reflect to you, Lord. Father, we thank you that when you uproot things in our hearts, it is not harsh. It's because you are displacing it with love. Thank you that you are gentle. Teach us now to let your gentleness in, to show us where we need to rebuke and where we need to forgive, and to free us from those roots that make their way into our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we can be rooted in you instead. May it be so. Amen.